You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Frank, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Yes, a record high for the Dow, a near record for the S&P, and our market guest says the gains can continue. He sees stocks going higher from here, and while some pockets look overvalued, he says there are still plenty of areas that aren't. We'll talk about which ones and where exactly he's buying. Plus, a blowout finish for biotech stocks with a sector up 40% in the past eight weeks. We'll talk to one CEO whose experimental heart disease drug just delivered big results and sent the stock soaring more than 80%. And the ups and downs of commercial real estate. We're heading down south to one area that billionaire Ken Griffin says could overtake New York City as a financial hub. Before all that, though, let's start with the markets. And Dom Chu has the all-important numbers today, Dom. They're all important every day, but again, this melt-up just keeps on continuing and continuing. We're still in that Santa Claus rally period, that last five trading days of the year and the first two trading days of the next year. And the markets have been generally higher. The Dow Industrials are up one quarter of one percent, 37,743. We get to put a star up here because it's a record high for the Dow Industrials today. The S&P 500, 4791, up a one quarter, one percent as well. It gets a check mark because it's a high for the year. And we're just about a third of a percent away from record high levels that we saw just about two years ago. And the Nasdaq Composite up one quarter of one percent, 15,132 as well. We're roughly six or so percent away from record highs there. So keep an eye on that. Uh, Lower prices right now in oil. U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate, $72.72, down almost two percent right now. On some easing concerns about what's happening in the Red Sea, there are some fewer attacks. It appears as though some of the efforts to stem some of the the Houthi attacks and vessels in the Red Sea are maybe having some effect. So some optimism there. Putting crude prices lower on the session, World Benchmark WTI or U.S. Benchmark WTI and World Benchmark Brent both lower on the day so far. You can see there, and then an interesting slate of stocks that are more cyclical in nature. They're red right now. Marriott on the hotel side, Caterpillar, Industrial Machinery, Builders First, you know, Construction Materials, and KLA Corp on semiconductors. At one point today, though, Kelly, interestingly enough, each of these stocks hit record highs in their own right. So four stars get up over here on these particular moves. But interesting that hotels, industrial equipment, building construction, and semiconductor stocks like these did hit record highs in today's session. We'll see whether or not that story continues to play out in the coming weeks into 2024. Kel, I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much, Dom Chu. Jobless claims rose slightly last week, another sign the labor market is cooling somewhat. But is it cooling fast enough for the Fed to start cutting rates soon? According to the latest CNBC Delivering Alpha survey, 54% of respondents expect cuts to start in the second quarter of next year. Our guest happens to agree with that. Joining me now is Gus Fauche. He's chief economist at PNC. Gus, welcome to you. Thank you very much, Kelly. Pleasure to be here. So when we talk second quarter next year, April, May, June, that kind of time frame? Yeah, I think we're talking more towards the end of the second quarter, beginning of the third quarter, rather than in the early spring. Uh, I think the Fed wants to be sure that inflation is slowing more towards 2%. It's certainly moving in the right direction. Uh, But, you know, with the economy remaining strong in late 2023, and it will continue to remain strong in early 2024, I think they're comfortable keeping rates where they are in the near term. And then once it becomes more apparent that inflation is slowing towards 2%, they can cut then. All right. So your base case is kind of the positive disinflation story or the worrisome kind? 
I think it's the positive story. We've seen a significant slowing in inflation, particularly on the good side over the past year. Uh, housing inflation has been a problem, but that's likely to slow in early 2024 with, with rent growth slowing dramatically. And so I think that we will see slower inflation with still solid growth in the first quarter of 2024. And then that would give the Fed some leeway to cut rates in the middle of next year. And I guess the question then is, if this is already priced in, and, and Gus, that's where I wonder about the pendulum swinging back to the other side now. We're talking about March. I think Goldman and some others are talking for the first cut January, some people think. So the market's really off to the races with this. And what do you think that tells us about the level that we're seeing bond yields at to close the year? Um, I, I mean, I certainly I think that markets expect lots of rate cuts in 2024. I'm, I, I'm a little bit skeptical about that story. Uh, I think that if growth remains solid, then the Fed will say, you know, look, we can keep rates where they are in the near term, make sure inflation is moving to where we want to be, then start to cut rates. I think if you see a lot of rate cuts, that's actually bad for the economy because that's an indication that things are slowing more quickly. Uh, so I expect with still solid growth and with slowing inflation, we'll see the Fed cut a few times next year. And then that sets the stage for solid growth in 2024, slower than what we saw this year, and then expansion in 2025 as well. All right. We have a seven-year auction. I just want to get those results in. Gus, we'll come right back to you. Uh, Rick Santelli is back in action at the CME. Rick, so you can give us the grade. How'd it go? You know, it was a dog plus, a huh. dog plus. And I know that there's many out there, of course, that are going to Look at some of these results and maybe have a different grade. But first of all, look at the intraday of seven-year. And you can see yields are moving higher. Usually uh, symbol, uh, it symbolizes a, a not as uh, solid an auction as we would like to see. And if you open the chart up to early June, you can see yesterday's settlement right at 381 was the lowest yield close, uh, basically going back to the first week of June. Here's the metrics. We had 40 billion seven-years. And the Dutch auction yield was 3.859. The problem was the one issued market was trading at 3.835 with a high yield of 3.84 before the auction ended. So we ended up with a higher yield, which means a lower price. Government's the seller, not good for demand. So D plus, dog plus. If you look at the bid to cover, it was roughly average. If you looked at indirects, it was actually the best since March at 63 point, excuse me, the weakest since March, since 60, uh, March at 63.7. But there was one really bright spot here, okay? And hence the plus for the D. And that was 19.4% went to direct bidders. That's very good. It shows that many of the insurance companies, pension funds, real users of, of securities really stepped up for a seven-year, which is unusual. Dealers took almost 17%, which is unusually high. So we just completed $155 billion in treasury coupon supply. Five-year went well. The seven-year did not go as well. And it really does underscore that not only is it a holiday week, which impacted the results, I'm sure, but this puts many question marks into the big picture. Not any single auction, Kelly, but in its entirety, the amount of supply that the Treasury needs to move to take care of our deficit spending is going to challenge some of the demand by investors around the globe. Back to you. Rick, we missed you for the two and the five-year results. Both Steve and I did our best to give it a grade, and we thought it was basically an A. In, in the last couple of days, we saw bond yields drop significantly after those happen and, and stock prices rise. Today feels like a totally different story. I'm not, I won't blame you, but it's a totally different story. 
yes, it, it is totally different. And to be fair, the five-year is always going to probably, when you get this particular package of twos, five, sevens, the five-year always has a propensity to do a bit better because many real money accounts gravitate to that part of the yield curve. A lot of financing and a lot of uh, derivative contracts, of course, are predicated around the five-year. Seven years a little bit more odd. There was a time when the mortgage market was a bit better, housing market was a bit stronger, where seven-year matched up nicely with the duration of a mortgage, but that demand really isn't going to show up considering how weak the housing market is due to high prices and high financing costs. Rick, if you, if you don't mind, let me just pull you into this chat uh, Gus and I were just having because it's a very different tone in bond markets today than two months ago. Um, it seems like we've gone from inflationary to disinflationary, almost even deflationary talk literally overnight. Gus, do you just want to talk about that? I mean, how much, how much disinflationary impulse do you really see in 2024? Um, you know, I mean, I expect to see a fair amount. It's going to occur mostly on the services side, some of that from housing, some of that from other services with slower wage growth with the with the labor market cooling up. Uh, and so I think that, you know, the Fed will be at their 2% objective sometime around the middle of next year. And that's really pretty remarkable progress, given what we uh, the high inflation that we had in 2022 and then even into early 2023. Rick, that, that's my question to you as well. Do you think the bond market has gone too far in pricing in these really dovish outcomes right now? I think the bond market has done the same thing that many Fed followers and even Fed governors have done, and that is annualize some of these numbers that we've received over the last couple of months, and they annualize a one-month uh, PPI or CPI or PCE or a deflator, and they look to see how much lower, of course, it's going to be. But the problem I see is, is that I'm not so sure that inflation is going to have a linear outcome that would allow those annualized rates to be true to form when we ultimately get there. And you could pick, there's so many different inflation indicators. I don't think it should surprise anyone that the Fed's favorite is the one that's going to be the lowest. But if you look at CPI and go to Bureau of Labor Statistics, C, uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics website, look for the CPI inflation tool. And I urge viewers to play with it because what they'll find is, is that when they go back in time, the compounding nature of inflation is much a rougher ride than annualizing some of the more current inflation rates. Do you think we could see a, a backup, Gus? Because uh, pick your variable. Maybe it's all of a sudden some home price inflation. We saw what happened with prices in October. Certainly, that's the case. And I think, you know, certainly energy with what's going on in the Middle East, that could potentially drive inflation higher. Uh, if the labor market doesn't cool off as we're expecting and service industries see stronger price growth. So certainly, I think that risks to the inflation outlook still at this point are to the upside. And I think that's why the uh, FOMC remains cautious in the near term until it really is convincing that inflation is doesn't necessarily need to be at 2% year over year, but will get to 2% year over year. Rick? You know, I don't think the Fed uh, is going to see its 2% target. I think we're going to be more to a 25 to 3% inflationary picture. And I do think the Fed will find ways to ease the pressure on rates. But I really don't think you're going to see rates move as far down as some of the markets may be projecting. And I do think long-dated Treasury yields in 2024 are going to pay a whole lot more attention to the fact of how much debt we have, how expensive it is to service, and all the cross-currents in government as one side, of course, uh, the, from the Fed makes 
the Treasury side much more difficult due to how high it raised rates. And now it's going to have to maybe give a little bit back to relieve some of that pressure. All right. By the way, markets hanging on to its gains after that relative. What, Rick, what was your grade? D? A D plus. A D, D plus. plus. Okay. We saw some of the metrics pretty solid, but the actual pricing itself was weak. All right, Rick Santelli, thank you. Welcome back. We appreciate it. Gus Fauché, thank, thank you as well for your time today. It's good to see you. Let's turn two stocks with the Dow and the NASDAQ 100 at record highs. The NASDAQ 100, not the composite yet, or the S&P. We're almost there. My next guest expects markets to continue climbing in 2024, but with some bumps in the road, and he's looking for the laggards for next year's gains. Let's talk to David Katz. He's chief investment officer at Matrix Asset Advisors. David, first of all, how did the year go for you? You know, because there were a lot, we talk about the MAG-7, but you have names like General Electric that have doubled. What, what, what powered your portfolio? Stockwood, the year went uh, relatively well for us. We have two strategies, value, which was very good, and we had five of the seven Magnificent Seven that we bought when they sold off last year. The dividend portfolio had a very slow start, but for the last two or three months is ending really strong, so we're feeling good about that, too. Our outlook on uh, bonds was pretty good, so we're, we're hopeful we get close in terms of what we're thinking about next year to what we uh, thought this year. I love that you just said you had five of the MAG-7 in your value portfolio. <laughs> Let us not forget what people thought about those stocks 52 weeks ago. That's a great point. You know, we looked at it this morning. You know, even though they've had a phenomenal year this year, the group average is only up 8% over the last two years. Mm -hmm. So you just have to remember, you're not guaranteed to make money in those stocks. Uh, they will fluctuate. And our outlook for them next year is good, but not nearly as good as it is now. And as, as you'd mentioned earlier, we do think a lot of the laggards, the groups that didn't do as well, are positioned to catch up and lead next year. It's so important what you just said, that the MAG-7 overall is up about 8% over the past two years, because we forget how bad 2022 was. And at some point, you have to sort of say, well, you know, for all the talk about whether to sell them next year, if these names don't start performing, they're underperforming. You could say they've underperformed. You know, if the market's supposed to return 7%, they're doing four per annum. That's not that great. Uh, well, for the last year and a half or two years, the market has done poorly. But you're 100% right. We just don't think they're going to have the 30 and 40% gains next year. If the market does 8, 9, 10% gains, we think that they can come in somewhere around there. There are areas like healthcare or utilities uh, or financials that didn't do as well this year that we think can outperform the averages. Small and mid-cap also had a poor relative year. We think there's going to be a catch-up there. So there are lots of places to make money. We don't think you want to look at the recent trends and try to chase them. What gives you the conviction for an area like healthcare, for instance, which other than the biotech stocks we'll talk about next, I mean, healthcare has not performed nearly as well as people expected. So, I mean, you know, you have clients you have to answer to. Do You know, how confident are you about being in areas like that for 2024? We, we are very confident. You know, going into 23, we were saying the same thing about technology, which got creamed in the year before. And that it's paid off. In terms of healthcare, the reason that we're confident is the businesses have done well this year. The earnings have grown. Many of them are paying great yields, yet the stocks have done absolutely nothing. So the valuations are 10, 11, 12 times earnings. We think in a slowing economy where the Fed is going to be lowering rates, making uh, dividend paying stocks more attractive, it's going to be a really good place to be. And we're finding opportunities throughout healthcare. Companies like United Healthcare or the drug companies we think are particularly well placed or medical technology products are well placed. So the, the whole group has lagged and we think it's going to have a catch up rally. And we also think 
that if we're wrong on some of the things that we're looking for and on the economy, healthcare is going to hold up a whole lot better. What are your favorite dividend plays? Um, so right now, we like companies like Cisco, Medtronic, Nextera has been one of the poorest performing utilities. Uh, we think rates have dropped a lot over the last two months. Nextera has not recovered as much as it should, so we think that's a real good place to be. Uh, RTX, which is the old Raytheon, has had a poor year. We think that they're paying a nice yield. They're doing an accelerated share buyback. Uh, stocks at a very attractive price. And unfortunately, we need a lot of the products that they make, uh, both in the U.S. and globally. Yeah, no, it, it, a lot of people have been pointing that out, obviously, lately. So I guess my final question would be about industrials, which we've seen the valuations in some ways showing uh, up to be more expensive than the rest of the market in a year in which the ISM still look pretty weak. But there's been individual stocks that have done quite well. What's going on with that group as a whole? It's exactly right. The group has been spread out. So there are some things that are richly priced and there's some opportunities there. So FedEx just got beaten up in the last week or two. Mm -hmm. uh, we think that's back at an attractive level. The company just announced a $1 billion accelerated share repurchase program, which we think is very bullish. Air Products also has underperformed the market this year. Uh, their earnings have grown 10 percent. The dividends grown at 10 percent. Yet the stock hasn't done anything. We think that's another industrial that's a good place to be next year. All right, we'll leave it there. I'm just going to circle back to those big MAG7 uh, components. Like, I'll just throw an NVIDIA out there, for instance. Maybe you can name a few others. Are you comfortable? Are they going to stay? In, can, can they stay in your value portfolio? Are you comfortable holding them next year, even if you maybe wouldn't be a, a buyer? Well, we don't own the NVIDIA and we don't own the Tesla. But we do like still the valuations on Google and Meta. Apple is getting about fairly priced, so we're, we're less enthusiastic about Apple, but we expect to hold it. And Microsoft has some very good prospects, so we're staying with Microsoft for now, but we're less aggressive in terms of putting new money into it. All right. You may always make so much sense. Uh, David, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. David Happy, healthy Katz, New Year. You too, with Matrix Advisors. Coming up, it's been a wild few weeks for biotech, and one company is ending the year with a bang. Cytokinetics hitting a 19-year high and coming off its best day ever after its heart disease treatment saw successful trial data. What's next for the company after seeing takeover interest from names like Novartis and AstraZeneca? We'll ask the CEO in a first on CNBC interview next. Plus, mixed messages in Miami. Ken Griffin says the city could overtake New York as the financial capital of the world, but another developer says luxury condos there aren't selling. We'll get the latest from the largest landowner on Miami's Miracle Mile later in the show. As we head to break, here's a glance at the markets hanging on to their gains after that relatively poor seven-year auction Rick told you about. The Dow's up 70 points. Any close today would be a record high. The S&P's up about six. It's a few points below its record close. NASDAQ composite about 6% below, but still adding a tenth of 1% today. 385 on the 10-year. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back. Shares of Cytokinetics soaring on positive data from a phase three trial of its heart disease drug, Avacamptin. Results show it produced a statistically significant improvement in exercise capacity 24 weeks after treatment. The stock hitting a 19-year high on the news yesterday. It's nearly doubled this week. Both Piper and Cantor say the drug is best in class. Joining me now with more on the news and the outlook for the company is Robert Blum, president and CEO of Cytokinetics. Robert, thanks for joining us. Welcome. Thank you so much. I just, what's your response? What's it feel like today? So these are especially gratifying times 
you know, when scientists dedicate to an area of biology like ours have done for what amounts to decades, and you see data like we announced this week, it's unlike any other experience I've had professionally. This is incredibly fulfilling, consistent with what had been our highest expectations and aspirations. We feel quite fortunate. How long have you been at the helm of the company? So I've been leading this company since 2007. I wow. was uh, involved in starting the company in 1998. And as I understand, the going back years even, there was a lot of uh, hope and expectation around this drug. The stock price reaction tells you, though, that some were still wary. Why do you think that is? You know, ours is a very risky business. As uh, you can see from my background, we've been at this for 25 years. We've had successes and setbacks. Um, in our business, that's not uncommon. Those companies that get to the other side of positive phase three data are somewhat rare. And we're now in rarefied air. We're very pleased that we've seen it through where good science translates to potential benefits now for patients. As I understand it, the big uh, competitor in this space is uh, myocardia drug, but myocardia is now owned by Bristol-Myers. Uh, explain the difference between your treatment and theirs. Well, interestingly, there's a little bit of history here. We took part in the formation of myocardia as a spin out of our research many years ago. Wow. And our scientists had a hand in the discovery of that new medicine. It's a very good medicine. It's available now to patients and they're experiencing tremendous benefits. But knowing it so well, we also knew there were opportunities to address what could be certain limitations. And we've engineered and designed now a next in class uh, drug candidate. This is called Afikampton. It has uh, certain features that allow it to be achieving more rapid onset of activities, more rapid reversibility. Our hope is that these data lay a body of evidence for support for what could be an approval that enables it to be used by more physicians for more patients. This is kind of a wonky thing, but those in the pharma community will understand. There was an article a year or so ago that said that your company aims to become the vertex of cardiovascular disease. Would you say that's about right? What are your aspirations in this space and how big is the opportunity? Yeah, so Vertex is one of those companies that we admire, as well as companies like Gilead, Regeneron, and others that have built franchises. And ours is a goal to build a franchise in specialty cardiovascular medicine, for which there's no uh, peer right now in the biopharma space. Combining the best of specialty pharma with uh, cardiovascular disease, we believe we can build a very valuable business, one that offers very high return on investment for shareholders and benefits for patients. This one particular compound, Afikampton, that you're referring to, this is the lead amongst now four in our pipeline. And these data that we announced yesterday read very optimistically, we believe, on this biology and our ability to mine it for potential new medicines. How many Americans suffer from cardiovascular disease? How many of them could potentially benefit from this drug? And what is it that this drug does to improve their uh, health? So the results we announced yesterday were from a clinical trial of Afikampton in the setting of uh, patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That affects uh, one in 250 patients. It affects um, hundreds of thousands of patients, admittedly not millions, the way some of the other uh, diseases that our um, research is focused to. But OHCM, if you will, opens the aperture on what could be 
other indications as well. And we're studying apicamptin and its sister compound, CK586, in those indications. And they read on what could ultimately be millions of patients who have diseases associated with impaired cardiac muscle biomachinery or mechanics. And that's underlying our expertise. Our scientists are the pioneers and luminaries as it relates to either augmenting or suppressing the cardiac contractility associated with heart function. Hmm. And again, using that exercise as a way of showing what patients are capable of after taking this. Does Do yesterday's results make it more or less likely that your company would be a takeover candidate now? Well, that's for others to answer. I, I, I really can't say. I do know that uh, we've been active in business development interactions, seeking to partner in certain geographies, and there's a high level of interest in the work that we're doing. These data meet our best case scenario, our high expectations for what could be those partnering interactions. But ultimately, we intend to go to market ourselves in North America and Europe, and we're building out for the commercial readiness to make that happen. The goal now is to manage that which we can control, which speaks to getting these data in front of FDA and the European equivalent as soon as possible, and hopefully a potential new medicine in patients' hands in 2025. Interesting. And finally, what would the cost of this be? And is it a one-time treatment or an ongoing thing? So this would be an ongoing thing. Patients would take this once diagnosed and as they would be expected to continue indefinitely. The cost we have not determined, but what we have demonstrated with these data is a value proposition that would be enabling of this potential medicine to be a good alternative to a surgical intervention, which is quite expensive. Our goal is to demonstrate not only pharmacoeconomic value, but also ensure access that uh, every patient who could be eligible would ultimately benefit. All right, Robert Blum, thank you for joining us. Congratulations, appreciate you explaining it and breaking it down for us today. Thank you so much. CEO of Cytokinetics. Still to come, home builders are also on a historic run to close out the year. Builders First Source, Pulte, Toll, and KB all seeing huge gains. We'll get the latest housing data later on and discuss whether it marks a broader turning point for the market. And as we head to break, financials are hitting new 52-week highs today, including components like J.P. Morgan, Goldman, BNY Mellon. Blackstone is now trading at a 20-month high. We'll have more of today's biggest movers on the other side of this break. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here's a check on markets. We're just off session highs on the Dow, even after that soft seven-year auction. We're up 76 points. Would be a record high today. S&P 47.89, a few points below its record close. NASDAQ composite a little further south, 385 on the 10-year. We mentioned some of the financials hitting 52-week highs before the break. Looking beyond the big banks, you also have the owner of the NYSE and our Continental Exchange trading at a 20-month high. Broadridge up to an all-time high, up 50% this year, and into it, a two-year high and on a 60% run since Jan 1. All three are still in oversold territory, according to their relative strength index. And the industrials, we just talked about this, but they're having a strong end of the year, too. General Electric hitting a six-year high, and shares have doubled since Jan 1 for its best year ever. 
General Dynamics and Ingersoll Rand both hitting all-time highs as well. As for the Mag 7, the Magnificent 7, we know those stocks have taken off this year, essentially doubling since Jan 1. But the big question is whether you stay in them or rotate out of them for 2024. Bob Bassani has more at the New York Stock Exchange. Bob? Kelly, good to see you. The explosion of the AI story in the Magnificent Seven were one of the big investing events of 2023. Leading AI names like NVIDIA is up 236%, Meta up 196 while Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, Apple, all up, you see here, 50 to 80%. A few points about this AI rally. First, a hand-wringing that these were the only beneficiaries are simply not true. Many other companies in the AI space benefited as well, not just other semiconductor companies. For example, AMD was up really big on the year. But almost anything involved in the cloud business had big moves as well, like Arista Networks, for example, and Cloudflare, uh, both up about 90%. If this plays out like other disruptive technologies like the Internet, you can expect the ecosystem around AI to expand dramatically in 2024. Second, all this hand-wringing that this would lead to crazy valuations has not occurred, at least among the largest players. Microsoft 2024 earnings, for example, at roughly 28 times forward earnings is only slightly above the five-year average of 26.7. Same with Apple at 26, only slightly above its five-year average of 23. Meta at 20 is in line with its five-year average of 19.5. NVIDIA, you see, 26. That's lower than its five-year average, which was around 35 or 36. And the same with Alphabet, also below its five-year average of, 20, uh, of 22. Third, um, since rates began declining in late October and this soft landing scenario became the dominant paradigm, the influence of the Magnificent Seven on the stock market has waned. While tech stocks are still strong, look at the leadership group here. The market has dramatically broadened out since November 1st. Small caps, small cap value, Equal weighted indexes have been leading the way, even as tech indexes like the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq 100 continue to gain and do well. You know, Kelly, there's a final little lament that everybody has this year that, oh, it's the Magnificent Seven is the whole reason the S&P is up. That's not exactly true. The S&P is up 25%. If you take out the Magnificent Seven, the S&P would still be up 10%. But it is true that it had a very big influence. My, my point to that is that's why people own indexes. That's I agree. That's why indexing won out because people didn't know what the leadership were going to be. It's not unusual to have a small group of companies leading the way. People say, we don't know what those small group is going to be. Here you are. The S&P is 25%. You have participated in that gain in the AI revolution just by owning the S&P 500. I couldn't agree more, Bob. Very well said. And I always feel like, okay, if the rally broadens out next year, I don't have to care because if you own the S&P, well, you benefit from that as well. <laughs> yep. And I know active managers don't like that idea and rail against the concept, but it, it has worked for a reason. Active management has not generally outperformed following the index. It's hard to do. Bob, for now, thanks. Okay. We appreciate it, Bob Bassani. To Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. An Israeli official told NBC News that the country's war cabinet is set to meet tonight. The cabinet is comprised of top Israeli officials, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the Israeli Minister of Defense. The source said the cabinet is expected to discuss updates on the fighting in Gaza and the plan for after the war. Federal judge upheld the Republican-drawn Georgia congressional map today, ensuring Republicans maintain their 9-to-5 edge among the state's House of Representatives seats. The decision rejects arguments from Democrats and voting rights groups that claimed that the map illegally dilutes the voting power of minority residents near Atlanta. 
And several storm systems are impacting travel across the country today. Steady rainfall sweeping through New England with 10 million people under flood alerts this morning. Air delays expected to continue in hubs, including New York City and Boston, and could delay flights out of major Midwest airports as well. The West Coast also bracing for torrential rains today and tomorrow, potentially impacting both road and air travel. Kelly, back to you. All right, I'll see you soon, Tyler. Thanks. Coming up, we're heading down to Vice City for a check on commercial real estate. The largest landowner of Miami's Miracle Mile joins us next for a pulse check. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back. We've been tracking commercial real estate across the country as credit concerns ramped this year. And today we are heading south to a state with one of the fastest growing populations, Florida. The latest census data showing the Sunshine State's expansion is second only to Texas, adding 365,000 residents this year alone. Miami in particular has attracted some of Wall Street's most recognizable names. Hedge funder Ken Griffin saying last month Miami could become the financial capital of the world. This after relocating Citadel to Miami from Chicago a year and a half ago. Real estate developer Don Peebles has told us right here on the exchange he's seeing big opportunities in Miami as well. Joining us for more on that is Stephen Battelle. He's founder and chairman of Terra Nova, the largest property owner on Miami's so-called Miracle Mile. And for those of us still stuck in the Northeast, Stephen, what is the Miracle Mile? Tell us, tell us everything. What, what, you know, where are your properties? Where is some of the development in the city happening these days? Are you seeing any slowdowns? So development in the city is happening everywhere, really across the board, from corner to corner, north to south. Um, Terra Nova is the largest retail owner on Lincoln Road and Miami Beach, as well as the largest owner on Miracle Mile and Coral Gables, our two most important high streets uh, in Miami-Dade County. Um, and, and, and Ken Griffin may have it right. Um, we saw a huge volume of relocations early in the pandemic of billionaires, and they brought their companies right afterwards. And now we're starting to see the second wave of their executives and the law and accounting firms that service them. So we have never been more excited about our commercial real estate future here, which is unlike almost everywhere else in the country. And when you say commercial, are you talking office, retail, both other things? So we are um, we're invested in office, retail, industrial and multifamily. Um, all of them are performing at record levels right now with occupancy rates and rental rates, the highest we've seen in 20 years. We had a guest on earlier this week, uh, Kevin Maloney, I believe is his name, and he is uh, exposed to a lot of luxury condos in Florida. And might, I'm not sure if it's in Miami per se, but said that there's been so much inventory coming on the market that prices are starting to soften and, they, and pro properties are starting to sit. Some projects, he said, are even stalled. Is that true in Miami? Most of the projects that didn't get started before interest rates ran up and debt capital became less available, have stopped before they began. The developers are holding on to the land. Um, rental rates have flattened out. We've had a record amount of deliveries in multifamily. And after three years of skyrocketing rental rates, things have kind of flattened out. We're not seeing a lot of incentives yet for tenants to move in, but we think that could be coming. Um, this may be the only office market in the country that people are building new office buildings. And our occupancy and rental rates, again, are, are at record levels. 
So should we expect commercial real estate owners to run into any problems on rates alone, for instance, um, when they have to do those calculations or maybe face maturities in the next year or two? Or do you think they're going to be you know, unaffected or make it through okay? It really depends on how well capitalized the property owners are. No question that people that had variable rate mortgages uh, have seen more than rates run up from 3% to 7.5%. People with fixed rate mortgages that have maturities are seeing a meaningful increase and a re-underwriting. It's going to require them to either pay down the debt or, or to give it back. Um, at the same time, occupancy and rental rates for the better buildings have gone up meaningfully. So there's there's a tension there and you know it'll be a it'll be a tale of different owners getting different performance. Um, we bought an office building four months ago and we're able to get a 60% loan to value mortgage and came in with the rest with a, a big chunk of equity. Hmm. That building has continued to lease up at rental rates above projection. So every owner has a different story. The biggest crisis we face is the small and mid-sized banks are really out of business in terms of new debt, and they are the primary lenders to small and mid-sized businesses. They claim that the Fed is pressuring them to shrink their loan books, and as long as that's going on, that's a risk factor that we face. Can private credit, private equity, those kinds of firms step into the void? There's no question that the hard money lenders have shown up with rates at 10 to 15 percent, meaningfully different than where we were used to borrowing from the banks. We have not been a borrower from those sources, but most of the market, as they have maturities, are considering some of these lenders. You said that with a slight smile, if I might have discerned that. Is there a reason, is that a, a good thing to you? Do, do you think that if people have to turn to those sources, they are going to pay maybe a little bit more uh, than they might feel comfortable doing? I guess the smile was, look, we we were prepared for this storm. We had a, several large liquidity events at the end of 21, and we patiently waited. So we have a 42-year history as a company and, and a balance sheet that was built to ride out storms like we are experiencing right now. So these usually are the moments of greatest opportunities for well-capitalized experienced operators. All right, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. It's good to check in with you. Hope to do so again Thank soon. Thank you, Kelly. Stephen Battelle with Terra Nova. Coming up, mortgage rates sank last month, boosting home builder stocks, but it hasn't necessarily translated into more home sales. We will get the latest read on housing next. Stay with us. Welcome back. Mortgage rates plunged last month, but pending home sales didn't budge. Diana Olick is here now with more. Diana? Well, Kelly, the street was expecting a slight gain because, as you said, mortgage rates came off that 8% high in November. But pending sales remained unchanged from October, sales down 5.2% from last November. That, according to the National Association of Realtors. Now, this number is based on signed contracts during the month. So it's a forward-looking indicator of closed sales, but also the most current look at what buyers are really thinking. And mortgage rates here are key. The average rate on the 30-year fixed soared over 
percent in mid-October, then dropped sharply to seven and a half in the first week of November and ended November around seven and a quarter. And again, that's why the street was looking for a small bounce. Now, the realtors did note in their report that while that drop didn't result in more formal contracts, it did spark a surge in interest according to their lockbox indicator. That's those boxes on the doorknobs, which on new homes show who's going in and out. And so it shows who's seeing showings. And regionally, though, pending sales rose very slightly month to month in the Northeast and Midwest and rose more sharply in the West, which is where prices are highest. So a drop in rates would help the most. Sales fell in the South. Now, mortgage rates are solidly in the mid six and a half percent range, which could bring a boost to sales to start the new year. That is if we get more supply on the market. And Kelly, as we keep talking about, that is the big if for this spring. Indeed. Diana, for now, thanks our Diana Olick. Coming up from a splashy debut to mega corporate drama and now to major lawsuits. We'll talk about what's in store for artificial intelligence next year with the CEO of Builder.ai. That's next. Welcome back. It's been a breakthrough year for generative AI, and as its popularity has grown, so too have questions about the rules of the road. Most recently, with the New York Times suing OpenAI and Microsoft, alleging their AI tools use its content without permission. Our next guest founded another Microsoft-backed AI startup, and he expects innovation and regulation to accelerate in the new year. Joining me now is Sachin Dave Dougal. He's Builder.ai's founder. Sachin, it's great to see you again. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. All the way from Dubai, as I understand it as well. Uh, they, they, is this business related or yeah. just a little little personal trip? Uh, you know, um, London's really cold right now, so the kids <laughs> wanted a bit of sun uh, and we can kill two birds at once. So a bit of work and a, and a, and a bit of vacation. I didn't know. They've got that Falcon, uh, you know, LLM that everyone's always talking about. Anyway, so uh, tell me a little bit about some of the prospects that you see. When you see this New York Times lawsuit, do you think to yourself that this could really stunt the growth and adoption of generative AI or, or no? I think it's, um, you know, when you think about language models, they, they need access to information. Um, and that's sort of a precursor because they need to assimilate like a pattern of thinking or a pattern of prediction um, so that they can at least sort of feel like they have general knowledge. Um, but I think it you know the the this particular lawsuit and others that are that are like this they're bringing up a really important point which is you know at what point is the knowledge a copy and at what point is that knowledge inferred you know if if you imagine um you saw a painting or you read a poem and you got inspired to write something new well are you infringing the original poet or the artist or are you being inspired to write from it now in human sort of terms, that's really well established. But when machines are doing this at this unprecedented scale, it sort of really leaves this sort of open point um, and a big gray area between straight copy and paste mm -hmm. um, and um, direct and in, in sort of inference. Yeah, to me, it seems like it, it comes down to if the output is literally plagiarism, it's plagiarism. If the output is not, you know, and there's different layers uh, people will analyze on this, but that seems like one obvious place to take it. I thought you'd be interested to talk to you about this as well, because a lot of what Builder.ai does is kind of give people a way of building apps without having to know coding or AI or whatever themselves. And often it'll say, okay, you can build an app like the New York Times. You can build an app like Facebook's. You can build an app like Amazon's. Is that sort of imitation, does that take any of their intellectual property in, in order to recreate the, you know, that look and feel of an app for something new? 
Well, so I think that's a really good point, right? And so number one, we don't replicate what someone else might be doing. We don't um, copy and paste. When when people are trying to build software and they're not technical, um, in fact, when people are trying to do anything and they don't really have the subject matter of what they're trying to do, they often say, I want to build something like this. It doesn't mean you're doing a rinse and repeat and a replica of that particular piece. What you're doing is it's like a it's almost like a vernacular that they're using as a reference point. Right. Then they will say, but I want it to do this. I wanted to add these features. I want it to be pink. I want it to look like, you know, with these buttons and these colors. And and that's where our idea of it's reusable features, not reusable applications, and it's very different. Um, so we don't really enter this world of plagiarism. We don't really enter this world of you're actually building a copy of X, Y, Z. What we're simply saying is help us describe what is in your mind that you're trying to build. And when most people describe that, they will describe it by using references of things that they already know exist. And, mm -hmm. and that becomes a stepping stone for how they think about the future. And then I guess finally, the AI that you're using in some way, shape or form to, to do this, how does it learn, right? What are its data sets and where do those draw from? Yeah, so, so so Builder is multimodal in its nature. Um, so on one hand, we have a knowledge graph um, and we use graph theory. So think about a knowledge graph as how the human mind works. It's relationships between features. You know, when, for example, you have a checkout feature and you have a payments feature, maybe the one thing you want to add is saved cards so your customers don't need to continuously um, enter their credit card details. So that's kept on a knowledge graph. Um, once we figure out here are the 51 features you need in your application, which could be, you know, through multiple reference points that you've had questions that you've answered to, mm -hmm. to Natasha RAI, um, it'll get to a basket of features. Then a neural network, a graph neural network will say, here is the happy flow across these 51 features. And that's why, to your earlier point, it's not sort of copying because it's actually designing the happy flow right. of the features that you've now sort of got to. And then the last stage of it is um, the customization. Um, and that customization, we're now getting to a point where actually using all of the historical data that we have inherently, you know, for example, we asked about one and a half million questions from our customers last year. Wow. About 1,200 were actually unique questions. The rest were just variations of that question. Right. And so we have really strong data points that allow us then to be able to generate the code. That makes sense. After do, after looking it through, I wanted a, a, an app for our show, uh, the Exchange app. We just need $72,000 or whatever to come up with it. Sachin, thanks for joining us. Uh, we appreciate your time. We'll check Thank back so in much. soon. Sachin Dave Dugal from Builder Thank AI. You. That does it for the Exchange. Power Lunch is next. Don't go anywhere. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.